lot of lot of reading left to do in the book of Acts. And Lord willing, Lord willing, we will finish the book of Acts in 2020. Now, I'm like you. I have I have no I have no idea what the rest of 2020 is going to look like. Um, but Lord willing, uh, we will finish the book of Acts in uh, in 2020, and we will be able to uh, start a new sermon series uh, in January. But we do have some ground to cover. And so let's dive in together here this morning. In Acts chapter 22, we're going to start at the very last verse of Acts chapter 22. Acts 22, verse 30. Some of your Bibles may have it laid out where verse 30 actually starts a new paragraph. And I just have to remind you again, the chapter and verse divisions were not original when the Bible was written. They were added many years later, and they're just a helpful, helpful way for us to find a, a common meeting point so that we know where to start and where to end, okay? So sometimes the chapter and verse divisions are really, really helpful, and other times, like this morning, we actually need to start at the end of chapter 22 in order to make sense of chapter 23, okay? So I'm going to read through Acts chapter 22, verse 30, all the way through the end of verse 20, or chapter 23. And that's going to be our, the passage that we look at together this morning. And I'll remind you that we're looking at this kind of uh, last scene, these last few scenes in the life of Paul. And though we're dividing them up over the course of weeks, uh, this, if, if we were watching a movie, all of this would play out probably in about 15 or 30 minutes. Acts chapter 22, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. This is the Roman tribune who is doing this. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, right, you can, you can, you can see Paul kind of maybe, maybe wiping blood off of his lip. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to your law? And yet, contrary to your law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension, a fight, arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. 
what if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, again, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And verse 11 here, brothers and sisters, is going to be kind of a focal point for us this morning. Let's look at it again. The following night, the Lord stood by him. The Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. There's probably about 40 people in this room right now. When they went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And when we are ready to kill him before, excuse me, and when and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So this would be Paul's nephew. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me to ask me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? Now, this is obviously a really young kid, right? I mean, a, a tribune... A hardened soldier doesn't take someone by the hand and pull them aside, you know, unless it's a really young kid. I, in my mind's eye, I picture someone like Abraham's age. What is it you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as as Caesarea at the third hour of the night, right? So here's like 470 soldiers. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to, his, to, to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to the excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Pretty Pretty uh, self-promoting letter that Claudius is writing here. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but 
charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Well, here, here we have another really exciting scene in the life of Paul. I mean, again, Paul's life is the stuff that great movies are made of. Here is this guy, and he's doing some amazing things. And let's, let's take a minute and walk through this story together here again. And let's notice some of the highlights of what's going on here in Paul's life. The Roman um, tribune brings Paul out and stands him before Ananias so that this hearing can happen. And Paul begins to speak. And one of the first things that Paul does is he says to the, the, the Sanhedrin, which is the, the Sanhedrin would be like the religious leaders and teachers of the day. And they would have been led by the high priest. And, and some have wondered why it was that Paul didn't immediately recognize the high priest, usually even just by his own clothing. Paul would know who the high priest was. And for some reason, either Paul doesn't acknowledge the high priest or doesn't know which one's the high priest. And he, he starts by saying, I have lived my life with a good and clear conscience. Now, imagine, imagine someone telling you, I've lived my whole life and I have a clean conscience. You go, that's... That's pretty, that's pretty impressive, right? I mean, no qualifying statements, no nothing. You're just going to say, and here Paul is kind of saying, look, wherever, however my conscience has been informed, if I was persecuting Christians, I was persecuting them because my conscience told me that was the right thing to do. And then God turned to me around and showed me that wasn't the right thing to do. And now I've been living my life following my conscience informed by the truths of God's word. So I've lived with a clean conscience. And the, the high priest can't stand for this. He, he, he wants to know, he believes that Paul has broken God's law and Paul's conscience should be horribly uh, alarmed, right? And so that's why he has someone standing next to Paul hit him, strike him in the mouth. And I don't know if this was a fist or a slap or what, but I mean, no doubt it gets Paul's attention. And Paul, <laughs> Paul responds with a little bit of fire here, right? He responds in a way that you or I might have responded. And he says to the guy who gave the instructions, the high priest, to, for him to have been struck, um, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, right? You look good on the outside, whoever you are, mister, but on the inside you are, you're a mess. And, uh, and you've ordered me to be struck contrary to the law. You're judging me because you think I've broken God's law, but you're actually breaking God's law by even having me struck. It was against the law for that kind of thing to have happened. And then something really interesting plays out here. Paul, um, th those standing near him, say to him in verse 4, are you going to smart talk 
to the high priest? And Paul does something really interesting here, and the theologians and commentators are a little bit confused as to whether or not Paul is kind of backing down and saying, oh, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't really know, I didn't know that that was the high priest. Or, Or if Paul is being a little bit sarcastic, like, how would I know he's the high priest when he's the one who is breaking the law right here, right now? We're not exactly sure the the tenor and the motive of what Paul is doing right here in this moment. But we do know that Paul does seem to express honor for the position of high priest. Because look here, he says, "Um, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. You're right. It is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So it's kind of like Paul acknowledges, you know, he is the high priest, and I am supposed to honor the office of high priest, even if I think a rascal is occupying the office of high priest. Brothers and sisters, just a quick aside, obviously there's a lot of application for us when it comes to honoring those that are in positions of authority over us, right? It is, it's, we honor the officers that God has put in our life because God has put them in our life even when we think that rascals are the ones who are occupying those positions. Paul addresses the high priest this way. He gets smacked in the mouth for it. And then Paul goes on, and Paul does something really interesting here. Paul causes a riot, and I think he does it on purpose. He gets, so let's imagine we've got the Sanhedrin here in front of us this morning, right? And over here are Pharisees, and over here are Sadducees. And this passage goes on to explain that the Pharisees were ones who did believe in a resurrection, and the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. Do you know what I'm going to say next? That's why they were so sad, you see. They, yeah, see, some of you know that. How many of you, that was the first time you've ever heard that before? Okay, fantastic. You're welcome. See, you will always remember why the Sadducees were so sad, you see, because they didn't believe in a resurrection. Paul obviously does believe in a resurrection. And here's something that's really interesting. When Paul is talking to them, does he say, I used to be a Pharisee? What does he say? He says, I am. I am. He identifies with the Pharisees there. We tend to think, because of all the evil and, the, and missing Jesus and persecution that the Pharisees did, that Pharisee means bad. Like we immediately just equate it with, but Paul was a religious leader and he says, I am a Pharisee and and I believe in the resurrection and I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ is the one who was raised from the dead so that we can experience this resurrection. Paul wasn't being dishonest by trying to cause a riot. He was being intentional by trying to cause a riot. And so he gets the Pharisees and the Sadducees the Democrats and the Republicans, whatever, he gets them fighting against each other. And I don't know. I mean, I, I do kind of wonder if he kind of goes, if he just kind of steps back and chuckles to himself like they, you know, I'm the one who's here. And now these guys are coming almost to blows, right? It says it, things became violent. And the Tribune thinks again, oh, man, my prisoner is going to be torn from limb from limb. And you'll have to remember, one of the reasons why the tribune keeps stepping in is because in the Roman world, in the Roman law, that Roman tribune was responsible for his captive. So if he loses a captive or if a captive is harmed under his watch, 
It's his responsibility. Do you remember Paul and Silas in the jail at Philippi? And when the, the, all the, the, uh, the jail cells swing open and the Roman guard thinks that everyone's gone, and what does he almost immediately do before Paul intervenes? He try, he, he's getting ready to kill himself because he knows these were my responsibility, and if I've lost them, then, then I will be killed. And it's going to be a whole lot easier if I kill me than if they kill me. And, and here, the same thing's happening where the tribune who is responsible for Paul realizes they're going to tear him apart. He intervenes again and puts Paul back in the safety of prison. And then in verse 11, verse 11, something beautiful happens. In verse 11, that following night, the Lord stood by him. I love those words. I love the words, the Lord stood by him. I'm jumping ahead to my application, but I just want to say it now. Brothers and sisters, do you know the experience of God's presence in your life? And I, I don't mean necessarily of, you know, a vision comes to you at night or a voice comes to you, an audible voice. But, but do you know that you can know the presence of God? And you can know the word of God. And here Paul experiences the presence and the word of God here in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him. Paul's life is just out of control. And Paul's life is completely, it seems to him, completely out of his control. He is either at the hands of a mob that's trying to tear him limb from limb, or he is in the control of the Romans. And brothers and sisters, some of you right now feel like your life is completely out of control, that there's no good options. If I do wear a mask, that's a bad option. If I don't wear a mask, that's it. If I go into public, that's a good option or, or maybe it's a bad option. If, it, you know, if, I, if I quarantine, maybe it's a good option or maybe it's a bad. And that's, that's just on one little issue in, in that we're facing right now, right? There's political issues, there's economic issues, there's family problems, there's all sorts of things facing you in your life, and you may feel like my life is out of control, and I don't, I don't have any control over it. Well, that actually may be the case. That, that actually might be the circumstances as accurately represented in your life right now. It definitely was the circumstances that Paul finds himself in. And yet, verse 11, God does an incredibly gracious thing. Now, I, now I don't know if you are like me. Yeah, I'll say this now. I don't know if you're like me, but when things get out of control, my wife knows within minutes of me coming home what my day's been like. Okay? Yep, some of you are nodding your heads. Some of you are too proud to nod your heads. But you did. You, you elbowed your your husband, or you, you're at home, and you just said, ah, yeah, me too, right, where um, if the, the different people respond different ways to different things. When I, if I've had a day where I feel like lots of things were out of my control, conversations, choices people made, choices I made, I will come home, and I will try to control the things that I can control, Right? So I'll walk in, and if a room isn't perfectly neat and straight and everything put away and everything tidy, I will go into this hysterical, 
frenzy of tidying up. You're like, that sounds really weird. I'm just telling you, when my life has been out of control and I can come into a little confined space and start controlling it, I'm like, okay, all right, good, good. I'm in control of this. Now, I didn't realize this until a couple of years ago. And all of a sudden, one day I realized, I'm just trying to control something. I got no control. I can't control my kids. I can't control my church. I can't control my own life of discipline. But I can control whether or not this kitchen has clean dishes. And you might be like, that's really weird. But you, you have your own way of coping. All right? It, it might be watching Netflix. It might be whatever. Whatever your thing might be. Brothers and sisters, when our lives are out of control, what the, thi- the thing that we need is not to assert our own control What we need to see in the moment is that God has control. Take courage, for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. We're going to come back to that here in just a moment. And then we see this plot, right? These these men, these 40 men come together, and they they swear. They take an oath. We're not going to eat. We're not going to drink until we kill Paul. It's a pretty serious oath. And either a lot of guys died of starvation, or they broke this oath at some point, right? But what's interesting is Paul's nephew, and we don't, I mean, we don't have any of the backstory here, so it's kind of fun to imagine, but it doesn't do us any good theologically. But it's kind of fun to imagine, what is this, why was this kid hearing these men talk about their plan to capture Paul and to kill him? But, but Paul's nephew fought, finds out. And, you know, nephews and uncles have a kind of a cool relationship. And Paul's nephew realizes, oh, they're going to kill Uncle Paul? Well, I should probably do something about this. So he goes and he tells Paul, hey, Paul, I found out they're going to kill you. And Paul says, hey, let's do, let's do something about that. You go tell the Roman guard who's watching me what you heard. And so the young man goes and tells the tribune, and the tribune says, okay, boy, thanks for telling me. Now go home. Don't tell anybody. And he gets together the special forces SWAT team, 407. So there are 40 Jewish men who want to kill Paul. And this Roman soldier says, I'm going to put out at least 10 soldiers for every one of those guys. We're going to, and he gets out like the armored vehicles of his day. They're decked out in their SWAT gear. They've got, I mean, seriously, they've got horses and chariots and stuff. I mean, they are ready. So you can imagine, right? Imagine those 40 men as Paul as they find out, Paul leaves at night, so I don't even know if they get to see exactly when Paul leaves, but when they find out, he's being guarded by an impossibly strong group of, you know, it would be like me taking on all of the Navy SEALs. I'd come close, but they'd probably win. No, no, right? Like, no, not even close, not even in my dreams. I don't think I'd dare even dream such a thing. And so, so here, God once again, taking care of Paul, getting him to the next place. He gets to Felix, and here Felix says, um, a- asks Paul about some of the circumstances, and then Felix says, I'm going to give you a hearing when your accusers arrive, and that's where, we, that's where we end the story of Paul for today. Let's make three observations. Let's make three observations. This morning, we're talking about how you must put your trust in God's sovereignty and still fulfill your responsibility. First of all, we see in this story that circumstances may look like man is in control. 
You, you look at the circumstances that are involved in Paul's life, and from Paul's perspective, it looks like other people are completely in control of everything involving him. The Jews are making a mess of everything. The Romans, though they're keeping him from dying, are still, he's in prison, they're still making a mess of everything. And brothers and sisters, there are times when we look at the world around us, we think that men are in control of everything and that they're the ones who are handing down statements and issues and rules and regulations and laws that we don't like, whether it's a boss or a spouse or a government, right, or health care organizations, whatever. They're, they're hand, and it looks to us like man is in control. It looked to Paul like man was in control of his life. And though circumstances may look like man is in control, who is actually in control? Do you really believe that? I think many of us say we really believe that. And I think some of us even think we believe that. I think there's a lot of us who don't believe that. And the reason I think that a lot of us don't believe that is based on what we say and what we do. It sure seems like, based on what we say and the way we act and our responses to things, that we actually think God must not be in control. I remember listening to Christian radio years ago, and I heard someone talking about something that was going on in the world. And I remember them saying something like, oh, my goodness, you know, isn't it, isn't it a shame? I mean, God has no, God has nothing to do with that. God's not in control there. God, and I remember thinking, this is Christian radio. You're supposed to know better than this. Even Christians, sometimes we say dumb things. We say the wrong thing. From Paul's perspective, it looks like other people are in complete control of his circumstances. I mean, literally in every way. He can't go to the bathroom without someone knowing, giving him a, a hall pass. I don't know how it works, but I'm sure it wasn't very, uh, you know, uh, a, a very nice accommodations that he had um, here in this Roman prison. He doesn't eat unless someone brings him food. He doesn't sleep unless he's given permission to sleep. He doesn't go anywhere. And, and Paul would easily think that these circumstances are completely controlled by other people. But God comes to, to Paul and does something really beautiful here. And our second observation is this. God is in control of, of all things. And I'm pulling that out of verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And I, there's, there's three things that I want us to see here under, in this second observation. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see that God comforts. I want you to see that God gives courage. And I want you to see that God gives confidence. Comfort, courage, and confidence just right here in verse 11. And what you need is not more of your strength and more of your power and more of your own wisdom and just if I'm just I'll just work harder and I will show no you need God you need God's comfort you need God's courage and you need God's confidence I see God's comfort here in verse 11 when it just simply says that the Lord stood by him the following night the Lord stood by him when do things look darkest and most scary and most emotional 
to you in your life? Is it usually 9 a.m. in the morning or 9 p.m. in the evening? I, I think for most of us anyway, it's 9 p.m. in the evening, right? Angie's dad has a little saying that when we get tired in the evening, we put our magnifying glasses on. And every problem looks that much bigger when we see them through our magnifying glasses. And I don't think it's even coincidental. Well, nothing's coincidental with God, but God comes to Paul in the evening. Surely Paul's tired. Surely Paul is tempted to be discouraged. And the Lord comes to him the following night, and he stands by him. He comes, the Lord, God, comes and stands by Paul. He was physically present there with Paul, physically or somehow spiritually manifested. I don't know exactly how it works, but, but Paul knew that God was standing there with him. The Lord stood by Paul. And brothers and sisters, just a quick tangent here. While we are being challenged to be with each other physically, know that God has ordained it that we are embodied souls and one of the ways that we actually bring encouragement to other people is to go and stand by them. God has made it such that we are physical and we encourage each other in physical presence with each other. And so you know what it's like when you're, when, when you're sad, when you're distraught, when you're discomforted for, for any reason. You don't like being alone. And a phone call is good and a FaceTime is better but to have your friend, your mom, someone come and actually be with you, right? Put an arm around you and be there with you. There's, there's comfort there. God comforts. God comforts Paul and God gives Paul courage. He says to Paul, take courage. This is something that Jesus says often in his ministry to people in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 9, to the palsied man, he says, take courage. To the woman who suffered with the issue of blood, he says, take courage. To the disciples, when they're in the storm-tossed sea, he says, take courage. When the disciples have gathered in the upper room, Jesus comes to them and says, take courage. Do you know why God comes to us and says to us, take courage? Because we need courage. Because we are uncourageous. We tend to act tough and we tend to you know, kind of put on a macho kind of exterior. But you know you on the inside. It's, it's interesting sometimes to look in the eyes of an adult and, and see the 13-year-old version of them and realize, yeah, they're just, yeah, they're 40, yeah, they're 50, but they're still that, they're still that who they were as a young child. And you can sometimes, you can sometimes even see fearfulness in the eyes of a, of a fully mature grown adult. You can see them running. You can see them trying. You can see them desperate for courage. And, and they'll try to, I, I, was, listen, I was listening to, uh, um, I don't know if it would be hard for you to believe this, I was listening to a, a hunting podcast. You may not have even realized that such a thing existed. Um, but I was listening to um, one of my favorite hunters, Stephen Rinella, and he was talking about, I don't know if you've heard this, Levi, he was talking about um, a grizzly bear attack that he and some other guys experienced. Some of you guys have heard this podcast. They had killed a, an elk um, on an island up in Alaska, and they were, they were gutting and cleaning the elk. Um, I think they'd gutted and cleaned it, and they'd come back the next day, and they knew that there was the potential for a bear to be in the area. And all of these guys had 
sidearms and bear spray. And I mean, they were, they were ready. They were macho hunter guys. They were courageous. And I forget, how, do you remember how many guys were in the party? Five, six, something like that. I mean, seasoned outdoorsmen, seasoned hunters, that sort of thing. The bear comes out of the bushes, charges them, literally mows over one of them, bowls over one guy, and runs, I, I think, then gets away. And th- these guys with rifles and guns and bear spray, the most they could muster, one guy hit the bear in the head with his trekking poles. Everybody else just kind of on the inside or the outside went. And this tough guy seasoned hunter said, it was embarrassing that I responded that way. I thought that in that moment, I would be tough and I would be courageous, right? And I'd be like drawing my my gun out of this holster and my bear spray out of this holster, right? And like spraying and, and in the moment. And brothers and sisters, we think that we're courageous, but there are, there are things, and you know this to be true. There are moments when you close the bathroom door, when you are in your room by yourself, when you're driving down the road by yourself, and you feel that gut-wrenching panic and you don't know what to do. And, you, and, and no one... No one else knows that you've ever had that experience, but you know that experience. Do you know what you need? You need courage from God. Take courage. It's easy to be scared. That courage doesn't come, though, just like, all right, come on, Courtney, be courageous. And then Courtney goes and be's courageous, right? Because I told her to be courageous. God actually doesn't even leave Paul with simply be courageous. He says, be courageous, take courage, because. Take courage, for, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also to me in Rome. And here, God encourages Paul to be courageous, and he gives him something to strengthen his confidence He gives him information that will cause him to be courageous. He tells him, add a boy, and I'm not done with you yet. Add a boy. Just like you've spoken about me in Jerusalem, and thanks for doing that so faithfully, Paul, you're going to do that for me in Rome as well. So Jesus is saying, take courage. This this isn't going to hurt you. This isn't going to harm you. These 40 men who have sworn that they are going to not eat before they kill you, they're not going to hurt you. I'm going to use you in Rome just like I've used you in Jerusalem. And so God, who is in control of all things, says, I'm in control of all things. These men who have sworn to harm you aren't going to. You're going to make it to Rome. And so our third observation is this, that God is in control of all things. And even though God is in control of all things, number three, you must live responsibly to fulfill God's plan for you. Is God sovereign? Absolutely. Over every molecule that floats through the air. Are you responsible to work and obey and do the right thing? Absolutely you are. You must live responsibly. So Paul has been encouraged. He's been comforted. He's been given confidence. And then he finds out that 
these men have made a plot, have sworn an oath to kill him. And so Paul might have thought, well, God's already told me that I'm going to make it to Rome. And so since I'm going to make it to Rome, he's talking with his nephew, right? His nephew comes and says, Uncle Paul, they're going to kill you, right? And Paul kind of yawns and says, ah, it's all right. God told me last night that uh, I'm going to make it to Rome. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be okay. Is that how Paul responds? It's not how Paul responds. Though Paul is confident of God's sovereignty in his life, Paul goes ahead and says, hey, okay, uh, let's, we're going to do something about this. Go and tell my captors, the Roman Tribune, about this. And so Paul actually takes responsibility. I mean, here, Paul's life has been in danger. I mean, Paul's life has been in danger from the very beginning of his ministry, right? When he witnessed for Christ in Damascus in Acts chapter 9, his life was being threatened. His first visit to Jerusalem, the Hellenistic Jews tried to kill him. The Jews drove him out of Antioch in Acts chapter 13, threatened to stone him in Iconium. He was stoned in Lystra. The Jews get him arrested in Corinth. In Ephesus, the Jews plot to kill him again. And they even plan to kill him at sea in Acts chapter 20, right? So, I mean, this is a man whose life, I mean, he's familiar with people trying to kill him. Have any of you ever, well, don't raise your hand, that would be weird. But I don't know of anybody that, like, had a hit planned against them, right? Like, people were trying to kill me. I don't, I don't think there's anybody in this room that's like that. I mean, some of you served in the military, and that's one thing, but... You know, it would be a really amazing part of your life story if you could say there was a guy in my town and, I, and he was trying to kill me and I found out about it. For Paul, it's like, well, you know, if you were to say, what was it like to have someone wanting to kill you and planning to kill you? And he would say, which time? What are you talking about? Like, which, which story are we talking about? And, and so Paul is already used to hearing from God and knowing Having this awareness that until God is done with me, I'm, I am, I'm unkillable. And yet he acts responsibly when he finds out this information about him. He, he doesn't just sit back. He does something about it. Brothers and sisters, let's just make a few minutes of personal application here. Do you act responsibly? Do you live with the information that God has given to you? You know that God has numbered your days and that he is sovereign over all things, right? But you don't throw caution to the wind because of that. You don't think, well, God is sovereign and he's going to take care of me. So, man, I'm going to go parachuting without a parachute. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to drive a motorcycle 100 miles an hour everywhere with no helmet on. Some of you may have that as part of your past, but... Hopefully you've wisened up past that, right? I'm gonna eat. I'm gonna eat my chicken raw. I, I mean, God's gonna take care of me. I, I you know, uh, I'm gonna leave loaded guns around the house and tell my children not to touch them, right? The doctor told me to take this medicine or I'm gonna die. But eh, I trust God. No, we do trust God absolutely, and we still live and act responsibly. I love the old hymn: Trust and obey. Trust completely and obey completely. It's not trust or obey, right? Trust and obey. Do you trust the sovereignty of God and then act responsibly? There's an old, there's an old um, saying, and, and I guess it could be misused, but 
<coughs> I actually like the idea <coughs> of pray as though it all depends on God and work as though it all depends on you. Now, who does it all depend on? It does all depend on God. But I think sometimes we might be tempted to think God's sovereign, so I'm going to just sit around and do nothing. No, God uses his people to accomplish his sovereign plan. Are, do you live responsibly regarding and toward others? You know for sure that your family and friends and neighbors will die. Did you know that? They will. They will. And they will, after dying, go somewhere and be eternally somewhere forever. And so God has put you in their lives to act responsibly toward them. And not just think, well, God is sovereign and he'll either take care of them or he won't. Yes, that's true. God will save whom he will save. And he uses means. We are the means. So let's act responsibly. And then for yourself, do you, do you knowing the sovereignty and, and the, the providence of God, do you live responsibly for yourself? Do you know that you will live somewhere forever or die somewhere forever? This life isn't the final destination, and you know that. Have you turned from your sin and put faith in Jesus Christ? Have you done your responsibility by repentance and faith? You see, and I conclu- I'll conclude with this, Jesus, Jesus himself lived in a world that looked as though it was completely controlled by man. Jesus lived in a world, and, and Jesus' life, I mean, like ours, the Bible even describes this world as being ruled by the prince and the power of the air. And yet he knew God's sovereign plan. God, Jesus himself, who was God, knew God the Father's sovereign plan for him, and he submitted his will to the will of his Father and actually lived responsibly and moved toward the cross to obey the will of his Father, and he obeyed the will of his Father even unto death, and Jesus' death brought forth life. And he did this for you, brothers and sisters. And so we look at Jesus Jesus, who was and is the sovereign king and understood the sovereign plan of his father and submitted his will to obey the will of the father in completing the sovereign plan of God. Brothers and sisters, we look into the scriptures and we see that God absolutely is completely sovereign and we rest and trust in that. And now we live responsibly in light of that. We do the right things, knowing and trusting the absolute and sovereign plan of God. So for yourself, that means that we turn from sin and trust in the Savior. And for others, that means that we tell them about the good news of the gospel. And we look to Jesus who did this perfectly for us and in our place. I'd ask you to bow your heads now and close your eyes. And I'll ask the music team to come and get in place. And we're going to close with a song, the song in Christ alone. And we'll confess together that our only hope, our complete hope is found in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And if you're watching or if you're with us this morning, I know I say this every week and I do it on purpose. If you need to talk to someone about making sure that you are rightly related to God through Jesus Christ, please come and talk with me or talk with someone about that today.
the rest of us in here, though, we need to be reminded of both the sovereignty of God and our responsibility as well. Father, I pray that we would be people who do, who trust and obey, just like Paul, more importantly, just like Jesus, that we would be people who trust and obey, that we would trust in the comfort and confidence and courage that are brought to us through Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would tell others about the sovereign plan of God and call them to repentance and faith as well. We together, Lord, will trust in Christ in whom our hope is found. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and we'll conclude this morning with song.